The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, we intend to make a discerned study of what God's Word, the Bible, has to say in context about the creation ordinance and institution of marriage. Our goal is by God's grace to come away with the necessary information revealed by God to understand, initiate, maintain, grow, and fully appreciate the beauty of and sanctity of the marriage relationship as designed and intended by God. It is also our goal to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which all too often accompany those who are skeptical, critical, or even hostile to God's Word. Father, I pray that your Spirit would provide guidance and light to our feet as we undertake now to open and search the path of your Word. Help us to discern between truth and error, 
Lead us by your grace to a fuller understanding and knowledge of who you are. We pray enlightenment of our minds to better comprehend the mystery, which is your love for your church. In Jesus' name, amen. As we open this episode on the discussion of marriage, it must be recognized that there are ultimately only two competing worldview assumptions which form the basis of how man defines everything, including the issue of marriage. In the first, we have the worldview sprung originally from Satan's lie in the garden that man can be like God based upon his own knowledge of good and evil. This progressively became the basis for pagan classical Greek thought, which likewise expounded the philosophy that man was the measure of all things. Finally, the Renaissance cemented this concept into the fabric of modern Western European thought, which revived pagan philosophy and gave birth to modern secular humanism, atheism, evolution, and the idea that man is, or can become God. Within this paradigm, human existence, life, love, marriage, and everything else is ultimately meaningless. Everything, all reality, is a product of random, mindless chance and accident. Looking through the prism of this worldview, if we were to ask any questions about marriage, we would seriously have to conclude, what difference does it make? If reality, including marriage, is comprised of random chance and accident, then there is no ultimate authority for meaning, morals, beauty, reality, or truth. Instead, meaning, morals, beauty, reality, and truth are guided by the dictates of whatever man sees as being right in his own eyes. Anything and everything can be rationalized as being good. Marriage, no marriage, marriage to or with one, many, animal, vegetable, or mineral items are all on the menu. There are no good, bad, or indifferent realities. There is only what time, percentage, consensus, opinion, culture, mood, and personal feelings dictate for the moment. In the second worldview, we have the contrasting idea that God and His Word are the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, justice, beauty, truth, and reality. This reality is not up for popular vote, for lobbying, or for overthrow. In this reality, we have absolutes, one of which is marriage. Further, marriage is not something which simply developed as the need arose. Marriage has a meaning, a purpose, and a design which unfolds from its creation as a type through progressive revelation to the substance to which it is intended to point. If so, any deviation from or disrespect of the type would tend to deviate and disrespect the substance and its designer. This being the case, it behooves us to respectfully 
and reverently attempt to learn and understand what marriage is intended to depict. Unfortunately, God's creation ordinance and institution of marriage is often one of the most misunderstood and mischaracterized issues of the Bible. From the outright atheist to the secular humanist, from the marginal secular quote-unquote Christian to the ardent faithful follower of Christ and devotee of God's word, there are any number of simple to profound errors which exist. These errors have historically caused any number of problems ranging from simple inconvenience to extreme heresy and rebellion against the plain revelation of God's will. Perhaps just as unfortunate and tragic is the fact that due to these errors, combined with an unwillingness or laziness for many to do proper research, God's creation ordinance of marriage has been corrupted to the point that disdain and ridicule often take place of what should rightfully be honor and respect. Some would intentionally or otherwise point to one or more verses lifted out of context as a straw man argument designed to impugn or to demonize a distorted view of marriage and ultimately to draw this disrepute to God's word as well as to God himself. But properly understood, God's word in context with the whole presents an integral portrait of that union ordained by God between one man and one woman created in his image. Correctly understood, we see that man and woman were and are two people taken out of one, having been created equal in the image of God, and then brought together by God under his plan to be joined together again as one in the covenant of marriage. As we shall see, the initial creation ordinance of God between one woman and one man was deemed as God as quote-unquote good. However, the union became marred along with all creation by the entrance of sin, rebellion, and separation from God's perfect covering. Ultimately, God bridged the separation and reconciled the p potential for marriage as well as mankind in general to be a new creation covered by God's perfect grace, made possible in and through faith in Jesus' completed work, along with his indwelling spirit. Thus, I encourage you to be patient and wait upon the Lord as by His grace we work our way through these issues and episodes to come to an understanding of what God's revelation says about marriage. To begin with, I submit that first and foremost it should be clearly understood that it is God's revelation that marriage was and is a creation ordinance for all of mankind, given as a pattern demonstrating God's perfect will for all humanity. By extension, it is important to understand that as with all things in life, we who are God's creation 
are either repenting, submitting, obeying, trusting, loving, and having faith in Jesus Christ, or we are separated, rebelling, denying, defying, and distrusting God, His Word, and His will. Accordingly, the creation ordinance of marriage is not a rubber band which can be stretched to encompass anything, everything, or nothing, all in some indiscriminate manner. Instead, rightly understood, God's creation ordinance of marriage is an inviolable, copyrighted covenant designed, created, instituted, maintained, and blessed by God. This is not to say that secular marriages cannot exist or that they will not be happy or successful by worldly standards. Instead, what it is meant to say is that, by God's estimation, when marriages are built upon the rock, which is Jesus Christ, and have His Spirit abiding and indwelling therein, both man and wife will have a common bond of inheritance. That marriage union will have God's promised peace and joy, which passes all understanding. Thus we begin our study by opening God's word to examine His revelation of His creation plan. The first verses which come to our attention regarding marriage are these. Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 28 state, quote, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth." Unquote. In looking at these verses, the first thing we notice is that several plural pronouns are being employed both in the original language and in the translation, which clearly refer to the triune nature of God who is doing the creation. Secondly, mankind generically, as well as male and female specifically, are being created to reflect God's image and likeness. The question as asked in a previous episode is, exactly how closely did Adam and Eve conform to God's image? What we know is that prior to chapter 3 of Genesis, Adam and Eve were considered perfect and good in God's estimation. But each were mutable, i.e. changeable, in contrast to God who is immutable, i.e. unchangeable. The fact that Adam and Eve were good and perfect is verified by the fact that God blesses both in the above verse, as well as the follow-up comment made in conclusion in verse 31 of the same chapter, which says, quote, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
and the evening and the morning were the sixth day, unquote. The fact that Adam and Eve were mutable is obvious given the outcome of, of events which take place in chapter 3 of Genesis, where Adam and Eve fall into sin due to the exercise of their free will choice while God remains perfect and holy and does not change. Given the dichotomy, the axiomatic result was a separation and breach since God cannot change and man, i.e. Adam and Eve, surrendered their faith-based covering held by God's grace. The second thing which we should emphasize is that, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, both Adam and Eve are said to be created in God's image. Some would incorrectly assume that God, or the writer, is suggesting that man was perfect while woman was not or that man was superior over the woman since the word quote-unquote man is used in Genesis chapter 1.26. But the truth is that the word translated quote-unquote man or Adam is more properly translated quote mankind unquote or quote humans unquote. So by extension, all humans, both male and female, are created in God's image. Not only so, but as was stated before, God blesses both and declares what he has created, Adam and Eve, is, quote, very good, unquote. So at least insofar as chapter 1 of Genesis is concerned, what we see so far is that Adam and Eve appear under the umbrella of generically being referred to as mankind. In this capacity of mankind, prior to chapter 3 of Genesis, they still equally bear the image of God and are considered by God as being, quote, very good, unquote, as a result, moving on in chapter 2 of Genesis, God's word moves from the summary of creation given in chapter 1 to giving more specific details of creation. In verse 7, we read, quote, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, unquote. In verse 15, we read, quote, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, unquote. Finally, in verse 18, we read, quote, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him, unquote. Now, some will insist that there is a contradiction, since verse 18 talks about God creating man and later woman, when in fact chapter 1 is already declared that God created man and woman and saw that it was good. However, it should be understood that Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, is in fact a closer look giving details which telescope in on Genesis chapter 1. Thus, Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 properly fits into the area of Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. 
In Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, we read, quote, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to all the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him, unquote. So here God brings every fowl of the air and every beast of the field to Adam to see what Adam would call them. Adam gives all the various names to the animals, but none of the animals are a suitable help meet for Adam. Again, some will find contradiction in verse 19 since the first part of this verse mentions God creating the various animals from the dust of the ground, when in fact Genesis chapter 1 verses 20 through 25 already outlined the creation of the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field on the fifth and sixth day of creation. But again, Genesis chapter 2 verse 19 and its mention of creation of the animals is simply a contextual reminder of an act which God had already performed. More importantly, Genesis chapter 2, verse 19 and 20 tell us that Adam became familiar with every animal on the land and the air which God had created, and he named them. The apparent purpose of these encounters with the animals was to find a help for Adam so that he would not be alone. At least that is the English word used in verse 18 above. Genesis chapter 2 verses 21 through 25 state, quote, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed." Unquote. At this point, for those of you familiar with biblical history, you will recall that for some period of time, both Adam and Eve lived in perfection and in intimate fellowship with God. There were no problems, no separation, no sin until chapter 3 of Genesis. It is only after the fateful events of chapter 3 that because of Adam and Eve's choice to take their faith off of God that God's redemptive plan for mankind is triggered. From that point forward, what we see is God's progressive revelation in his word towards reconciliation and man's rebellion to God. In essence, I submit that the creation ordinance of marriage between Adam and Eve, one man and one woman, is a type depicting the substance which is the redemptive relationship which God will initiate 
maintain, and consummate between himself and mankind through the finished work of his Son, Jesus, the Messiah, by the work of his Holy Spirit. Mind you, this is not some romantic sexual relationship as is depicted by the likes of the Greek gods of Olympus. This is a spiritual relationship, a relationship between fallen man and a holy God, between imperfect man and a perfect Savior, unworthy man and an eternally glorified great and glorious King. Our key to the type of marriage begins in Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Quote, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Unquote. Here, in the above verse, Paul makes the argument that the law of sin was in control of all mankind from Adam to Moses because it was not until Moses' time that the law was codified. More importantly, Paul recognizes that Adam was a figure, literally in the original, a type of him that was to come. The him, of course, being the Messiah, the Christ, Yeshua, Jesus. Paul himself verifies this in verse 15. Quote, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many." Unquote. God verifies this idea a second time through Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 45 through 47. Quote, and so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. However, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven." Unquote. These verses and others support the plain idea that there is a clear and unmistakable typology between Adam and Jesus the Christ. If this is the case, then since we know that Adam is not the only type pointing towards this substance, we should be prepared to discern what other figures within Scripture stand as a potential type for the same substance. In this case, I suggest we turn our attention from Adam alone to include Adam and Eve, as well as the creation ordinance of marriage between one man and one woman as another or complete type in question. Looking at Adam and Eve, we know thus far that it is clear that Adam is the type of Jesus who is the substance. If so, then we ask, what type does Eve represent? Well, first of all, Eve is a woman. Within the context of their relationship, Adam is the husband, i.e. the bridegroom, and Eve is the bride. Thus, we must ask, 
if Adam is the bridegroom and Eve is the bride, are there any similar analogies in Scripture between Christ, who is the substance of Adam, being a bridegroom, and anyone else being a bride? The answer is yes. Probably most Christians are well aware of the fact that Christ's church, i.e. the outcalled ones, born from above believers, are commonly referred to as, quote, the bride of Christ. There are numerous verses in the New Testament which point this out as a reality. Why? Is this simply a euphemism? A coincidence? A cute analogy? Or is it more? Going back to the creation account, we see that God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. Once Adam is asleep, God takes a rib from Adam closes the flesh and creates Eve, a woman. God then brings Adam to Eve, who pronounces Eve as being flesh of his flesh, that they shall cleave together and be one flesh. Both were together naked and were not ashamed. May I suggest that it was God's purpose and design to create a relationship by placing Adam into sleep and separating a rib from which he created Eve. Likewise, we may also say that it was God's purpose and plan from eternity as God the Father to send his Son, who was voluntarily crucified and died. From his death and his finished work upon the cross, the church, Christ's bride, like Eve, the woman, is given birth and life. Christ slept in death upon the cross. As he did so, the prophecy given by God in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, was fulfilled. Quote, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn." Unquote. John records the fulfillment in chapter 19, verses 34 and 35. Quote, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water." Unquote. So here we begin to see the substance of the marriage relationship type depicted by God in Adam and Eve. Just as in Adam's case, God desires fellowship, a relationship. In order to create that fellowship, God ordains and chooses to do so by making Eve, the bride, the special product and result of something God himself does through Adam, who is the type of Christ. In this case, like Adam, Jesus had his side pierced. Eve, Adam's bride, the type of Christ's bride, the church, is created from Adam's rib, which is close to his heart. From this, in part, and from the sleep of death, Jesus, like Adam, awakens. He is risen again. 
From this, God is able, like Eve, to give life to his bride, the church, the outcalled ones, whom God is pleased to bring before the bridegroom Christ, just as Eve was brought before Adam. The woman, i.e. Adam's bride, is named by Adam as Eve, which means, quote-unquote, life, or, quote-unquote, living. Just so, when God's elect, the church, Christ's bride, are brought forward from Christ, they too are given a new nature, which is alive and living. God is pleased. Christ is pleased, just as was Adam. Adam proclaimed in looking at his bride that this bride, Eve, is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Likewise, Christ proclaims the reality that those who are buried in death and raised to the newness of life are now justified before God, and we too are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. This is because we have in part put off the old nature, and by his indwelling Holy Spirit, we, by his grace, are clothed in his righteousness, and thereby share in the sure and certain hope and promise of a glorified body, which is bone of his blown and flesh of his flesh. Like Adam and Eve, we too can have fellowship, a relationship where we cleave together and are one by his blood. Because the church, the bride, stands clothed, covered in Jesus' finished work and blood, she is justified. She is spotless, perfect, and clean. Like Adam and Eve, both Christ and his church can stand before one another, and there is no shame, no reproach. This is because there can only be shame and reproach where there is sin and separation. But since Christ has covered all sin and healed all separation with his righteousness, there no longer exists any basis for shame. What was formerly separated as two, God now joins together again as one flesh in his Son, Jesus. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me again for part two. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. It's my